You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Okay, Jonah chapter 4. You want to grab your Bible and go ahead and flip there? Jonah chapter 4. Could there be a more awkward ending to a story, right? Um, in a, in a, just a whole story that's full of surprising twists and shocking turns. The ending is, is pretty fitting, right? It's uh, one of only two books in the Bible that end with a question. And to make it even more awkward, the end of that question is, and much cattle, right? I mean, that, that's just an awkward ending to any book. And so um, you, you could think is, is where we're going to end today with a concern for the cattle. And that's really not where we're going to end, and it's not really where the book of Jonah ends. So when you get to the end of, the, of this book, this last chapter, when, when we turn there and we start walking through that, God is about to walk us into the climatic point in the book. This is what everything has been building toward, right? So just kind of walk back and think about, um, or step back and think about, when we started in Jonah, we saw in chapter 1, Jonah running from God. We are seeing the surface of Jonah's sin. We are seeing that, that God said, go to Nineveh, and Jonah said no, right? And, and I'm going to go to Tarshish. He's going to go in the direct, direct opposite way that God has just told him to go. So you see that, that you see the surface of his, of his sin, what Jonah is doing, his actions. But when you get to chapter four, it's about to punch a hole through the surface to the source of his sin. We're about to see that the problem is not even Nineveh. The problem is Jonah's view of God, his view of sin and grace. See, the problem is ultimately, it's not Jonah's doing. The problem is Jonah's believing. So, so what we're about to see in chapter four is that the worst part of Jonah is saved for the last part of the story. What we're about to see, the sinful heart of Jonah, the self-absorbed heart of Jonah, the self-centered heart of Jonah, the selfish heart of Jonah. We're about to see the tribal heart of Jonah contrasted over here with, with the others oriented, the, the others focused, the, the missional, the missionary heart of God. We're about to see these two things contrasted. Okay, now with that, let, let me back up and say this. We are two, or we're in our second year right now. As a church, we're 18 months old. And, and for our second year, we've had a specific thing that we're praying for God to do, that we're preaching toward, that we're talking toward, that we're pleading and praying with God to work into, into us, the, the people of God here, the Stonegate family, is that he would start to press into us the connection between the gospel of God, his gospel, and his mission. You see this? That, that God would start to press into us the connection between us experiencing the grace of God and then us extending that grace of God to other people. So, so that God would start to press into us what it means to experience grace, that, that we would start to see and walk in and know and love and embrace the gospel, that, that God is saving and rescuing us from the past penalty of our sin if we're a Christian. A one-time event where we cross the line of faith and God saves us, past penalty of sin. But that saving goes deeper than just a past act that God is also presently saving us from the power of sin in our life, from the reign of sin in our life, from the rule of sin in our life. And then one day that God will, will finally and fully save us from the presence of sin in our life. So that we're living in the gospel, that we're experiencing the gospel, that God would press into us what it means to experience the gospel, and then that we would see this connection between that vertical experience and then the horizontal expression 
of extending that same grace to other people, right? This is what we're preaching toward. This is one of the ways that you can think about the mission of God and your call to be on the mission of God is God has given you grace. That's the experience of grace for you. And now he's calling you to extend that grace, to give it to other people, to get to align your life under his mission and to, and to get on him with that. See, this is the, this is the idea for year two. Okay, now with that, this is why we wanted to preach through the book of Jonah this year. Because it exposes this. What God is doing in the book of Jonah is exposing where his heart and his life is not on the mission of God. Where he has got his own way and his own will over here. See, it's exposing this in the heart of his prophet. When you get to the end of chapter 4, it's going to be a devastating critique on the heart of Jonah. As he asks these heart-piercing questions to Jonah. And these questions, and really this whole message of the book of Jonah, is to say to the people of Israel, do you see Jonah? Do you see how his heart is not for the nations and how my heart is for the nations? Do you see this man, Israel? You are like Jonah. That's what you're like, Israel. My, My heart is for the nations, but you're against them. My heart is for all peoples, but you're against them. And and this message of Jonah needs to shake the saints today and reverberate in the church today. That God is for the nations. Are you? That God is for your neighborhood. Are you? I mean, see, are you for your neighborhood? For, For the gospel going forth in your neighborhood? That God is for your city. Are you? See, it's not just gonna, it's not just gonna contrast the, the heart of Jonah and the heart of God or the heart of Israel and the heart of God. It's gonna be carried forward. It's gonna contrast your heart and God. It's gonna ask you the question when we finish today. Are you gonna live in your self-absorbed small little world? Are you gonna shrink your world down to your life? Or are you going to turn from that, repent of that and get on God's global mission? This joy-creating mission, this God-glorifying mission, are you going to run and spend your life on that? Okay, so with that, here's the plan for today. I want to contrast the heart of God, the heart of Jonah, then we'll end with some questions, and and that's where we'll finish up. So we'll start with the, the contrast of the heart of God and the heart of Jonah. We'll start with the heart of God. When you think about the heart of God displayed throughout the Scriptures, here's what you're going to find about this heart and this God is that the heart of God is a missional heart. That the God is a missionary God. A missionary God. That the heart of God is the heart of a missionary. That this is what you're going to find throughout the, the scriptures. Okay, let me, let me just kind of break this down into three different levels for you. We'll start wide angle throughout the scriptures, the Bible, all of the Bible. When you read from Genesis to Revelation, this is what you're going to find about God. You're going to see God showcased in the scriptures as the God that is for the world, for all peoples. Like not just the people that look a certain way, have a certain like economic status, have reached a certain um, educational level, that have this sort of a reputation, um, that, that have this sort of a career that they're doing, this sort of a race that, that they're kind of a part of. It's not that. You see a God that is for the nations, 
all peoples in all places of all cultures. This is the heartbeat that you see of God. Okay, now, now we could go forever on this. But let me just kind of raise your awareness of a couple of these things where you see the heart of God for people. First of all, just opening pages of scripture, you see that God creates man and woman. Genesis 1 and 2. He creates and he doesn't just leave them in the garden, does he? He goes after them. And see, this is a part of what it means to have a missionary heart. The missionary heart of God is that when you look at God and man, God and woman in the Bible, you always, always, always see God taking the first step toward them. It's always the initiative of God that closes the gap between him and his people. So, so he creates men and, and, and woman, puts them in the garden, and then he comes to them. He tells them how to live, what to do, what, what they're responsible for. And then they respond by rebelling and running from him. Do you remember that in Genesis 3? This is called the fall by theologians. And then do you remember what God, ha- God does um, in response to their running? Ha- what God does with Adam and Eve? I mean, he could have killed them right there, right? He'd have been good and just in doing that. But instead, God approaches them. Instead, he calls out, Adam, where are you? See, this is the missionary heart of God. This is the other-oriented heart of God. This is the others-focused heart of God. This is the self-sacrificing heart of God that he approaches us. Okay, and you see this all throughout the Bible. In Genesis 4, you see the same thing happening with Cain and Abel. Cain kills his brother Abel. You remember the story? And then what does God do with Cain? He doesn't kill Cain. He comes to Cain in Genesis 4 and says, Cain, where is your brother? See, he initiates, he closes the gap. It is the initiative of God that does those things. Think about um, Genesis chapter 12, where God comes to Abraham. This is one of the most important passages in, in the Old Testament. It sets the trajectory of the Old Testament and it clarifies the, the missional heart of God, the missionary heart of God, where you have got God coming to Abraham. That's the initiative of God, the work of God. He comes to Abraham and he tells Abraham in Genesis 12, I am going to bless you, Abraham. That's one of those words we'd all like to get right there, right? But listen, it's not just so he can give Abraham things. That is not the point of the blessing. The point of God blessing Abraham is so that now God will bless the entire world through him. He, he looks at Abraham and says, Abraham, I, I'm going to grow in you a great nation. I'm going to bless your nation. All, all these people of Israel, I'm, I'm going to bless them. And here's why I'm doing that. It's not to belittle the nations, but to bless the nations. That is why God is doing it. So you see right from the early pages of scripture that the heart of God is for the nations. The heart of God goes beyond the borders of Israel. The heart of God is for all peoples of all cultures in all places. Okay, now think about this in the prophets. You see this highlighted in the people of, of or the prophets of God, where, where they are oftentimes calling out against the sin of the people of Israel, but that's not their only job. Their, their other job is to also call out to the other nations. So this is what you have in Isaiah chapter 45, verse 22. You've got Isaiah saying, turn, speaking from God, turn to me and be saved. All the nations of the earth, turn to me, not just Israel, but all the nations of the earth, turn to me and be saved for I am God and there is no other. See, one of the goals of the prophets of God were to be light and salt to the world, to show the world that this is a good God, his reign is good for you. See, you see all throughout the Bible that God is concerned with the nations, all the world. Right? This is what you see. Now you see this probably clarified in the New Testament with the, the sending of Jesus. Right? This is 
This is the point in the Bible, the climactic point in history that clarifies and intensifies. It just brilliantly displays God's heart for the world, his his missionary heart. He sends his son, Jesus, on a rescue mission, on a mission of redemption. It's self-sacrificial. He he doesn't do it because he needs to do it, but because you need that. See, it's a self-sacrificing mission that God sends Jesus on. And when you think about the life and death of Jesus, like think about the missional nature of this, what it's saying about the heart of God toward the world, the the missionary heart, the missionary impulse of, of God in this, that he is sending Jesus, this is the gospel, that he is sending Jesus to live the perfect life that you could never live, to die the death that you should have died, to secure for all of his sons and daughters, the eternal affection of the Father. Do you see this? The gospel is showing, it's displaying the missionary heart of God, the others-oriented heart of God. And you see the product of the mission when you turn to the last pages of the scriptures in Revelation. In Revelation chapter 7, you see this glimpse into heaven. This picture of what the product of the mission is. The product of the missionary, of heart, uh, the missionary heart of God um, is. Revelation 7, you see this glimpse that John gives us of heaven where where there is a multitude gathered around the thrones. You can't even count them. It's like the the sand and the seashore. And and then John goes on to say that every nation, every tongue, and every tribe is represented there. That means that heaven is not going to look like this room. Every nation, every tongue, every tribe is there. You know what I think is interesting about that passage in in Revelation 7? is that crowd of people from every culture, for every place, all peoples, that crowd of people is shouting the message of Jonah 2.9, that salvation belongs to the Lord. This is the product of the mission. You see God's global heart, his missionary heart, his other-oriented heart come out throughout the scriptures. Okay, but you also see this in the book of Jonah. Now think about how this rolls in, in, in two ways. One, you've got God going after a rebellious city. And if you want to think about Nineveh, think about them this way. They are the lawbreakers, right? Okay, now you get a glimpse of this right off the top of Jonah. Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord comes to Jonah, the son of Amittai. Verse 2, here's what he tells him. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, their wickedness, their evil has come up before me. See the picture of this? Now, when, when I say go to Assyria, go to Nineveh, that doesn't, arou- like, that doesn't arouse in you like this emotional response. But for the people of God, the people of Israel, that would have. Israel or Assyria was a cruel people. They were a brutal people. They were the chief enemies of God and they were godless, right? Th- this is what you're seeing and this is what you're reading when you come across that word Nineveh. Nineveh or Assyria, they would stand in the Bible for what it means to live in opposition for God. They would be the test case. If you want to see a representative people for what it means to be godless, just take Nineveh. This is what they are. They are the rule breakers. If you look at the end of Jonah in Jonah chapter 4, 11, you see that, that this little Hebrew idiom where it says they don't know their right hand from their left hand. Here's what that means. It's just a way of saying that their conscience is so seared and so severed that they have lost sight of right and wrong. I mean, they're just rebellious rule breakers. These are the people that you're pulling out of the bar, right? I mean, these are the people that are so far gone that it just doesn't even look like they're they're savable. Okay, now think about what God is doing here. In the first two verses of Jonah, God is saying, 
Look at my heart for people. If I would set my affection on those people, what people would I not love? What people can I not rescue? What people will my grace not go to? You see what's happening here? He's using them as, as the representative people of what it means to be godless. He's using them as the extreme example of his missionary heart. And look what God does in Jonah, or in Jonah 3. He sends a great revival to the city. This is the storied presentation of John 3.16. That for God so loved the world, right? This is the storied presentation of that. And they repent, he relents. That's the story presentation of John 5 when it's going to say, that whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. They will not be condemned. They have crossed over from death, judgment to life. Affection. See, that's the story presentation of that. God is using them as the test case and saying, look at Nineveh and look at my love for them. That's my heart for people, for rebellious people for rule-breaking people. But it doesn't just go to the rule-breaking people of Nineveh. It also goes to the rule-keeping, rebellious prophet, Jonah. It also goes in this other direction, right? It it goes to this this self-righteous, this morally upright. See, see, Jonah isn't gouging out any any eyes. Jonah's not overly, like he's not a cruel people, right? I mean, Jonah's not those people. Jonah is the self-righteous, I'm better than those people. Jonah is the self-absorbed person. Jonah is that self-righteous person that would look down his nose at somebody else as if he's better than them. I mean, Jonah in this is presented as a man that when he looks at life and he looks at God and he looks at sin and he looks at grace, he's going to look at all that and here's what Jonah's going to think. I don't really need any of it. I, I'm good. I, I'm good. I, I don't need God for anything here. I've got this under control. See, Jonah is the rule keeper. He is the self-righteous one that should know better but doesn't. Now, do you see yourself there? I do see myself there. The self-righteous man. And do you see throughout the entire book of Jonah how God pursues that self-righteous guy? Through a storm, through a fish, through coming a second time, now a third time in chapter four. Do you see how he is relentlessly and patiently pursuing him? This is God displayed in Jonah, the missionary impulse of the heart of God. And if you can't see it in the Bible and you can't see it in Jonah, take a look at yourself. Take a look at you. If you're a Christian in this room, and you need evidence that God has a missionary heart, that the impulse of his heart is to go out, to love others, to to sacrifice. If you need to have good evidence of that, look yourself in the mirror and then open up your Bible and read Ephesians chapter two. Look yourself in the mirror and then look down and read, and you were dead in the trespasses and your sin following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the mind and the body, and were by nature children of wrath. That's you. That's what you're seeing in the mirror. And then this is the missionary heart of God, verse four. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved you, even when you were dead in your trespasses, made you alive. 
You see the missionary heart of God that's displayed in you? If you're a Christian, you are a display of the grace of God. That's what you are. And if you're not a Christian, if you're a skeptic in the room, if that's where you fall right now, you're you're investigating the claims of Christ. Here's the grace of God on display for you. Is that regardless of what you've done, what you've done, God stands ready to redeem, ready to rescue even you. Like this is the heart of God, the missionary impulse of God displayed for his people all throughout the Bible, all throughout Jonah, and even in you. Okay, that's the missionary heart of God. Others-oriented heart of God. Okay, now let's jump to the other side and contrast that with the tribal heart of Jonah. The tribal heart of Jonah. Okay, what do we mean when we say tribal heart? Like, what, what are we talking about in that? We are saying this, that as long as Jonah is okay and his people are okay, then life is good for Jonah, right? As long as he's taken care of and his people are taken care of, then the world's a good place. See, as long as Jonah's place, Israel and its perimeter are secure, and his people, Israel and the people of God there, as long as they're safe, then the world is fine for Jonah. See, see, Jonah is a tribal man. Jonah is a self-absorbed man. As long as his little world is taken care of, the rest of the world can get crushed. As long as his little world gets the grace of God, he doesn't care if the rest of the world gets the judgment of God. You see what we're saying here? This is the tribal heart of Jonah that you see contrasted with the the missionary heart of God. That Jonah is a self-righteous man. He looks at Nineveh as if they're getting what they deserve. And then he looks at himself as if he's getting what he deserves. He deserves the grace. They deserve the judgment. You see what's happening here? This is the heart of Jonah coming out. This is that tribal, as long as my world is taken care of, the rest of the world can go to hell. This is the heart of Jonah. Okay, now before we just start ripping on Jonah, because it's pretty easy to do, isn't it? Before we start ripping on him, I think it would be good for you to make sure that you've got a mind that's ready to reflect on your own heart here. Because you would make a major mistake today is if we're talking about Jonah's heart here, for you to look at him and to say, yeah, that's ridiculous. How could he do that? When in reality, Jonah lives in you. Jonah lives in us. He lives in me. This heart, this tribal heart of Jonah, this self-absorbed heart of Jonah, this self-centered heart of Jonah, it's in us. I mean, what we see in Jonah is a reflection of what, what's in us, what we are. Okay, let me give you a couple of evidences of the tribal heart of Jonah. Three of them real quick here. Number one, look at, look at verse four, or chapter four, verse one. Here's what you're going to see here. That Jonah is angry at the will of God, at the way of God. Jonah does not like how God is operating in this moment, right? This is going to be evidence of the tribal heart of Jonah. That Jonah looks at how this is played out and he does not like the call that God, God is, or the play that God has called here. He does not like the way God is operating here. He does not like anything about what is happening. This is the most shocking episode of sin in the story. I mean, chapter one is shocking, Jonah running from God, but chapter four is more shocking, Jonah outraged at God. I mean, think about how this, how chapter four really should start. Or maybe you can even think about it this way. Really, the book of Jonah should have concluded at the end of chapter three. See, we could have added one verse to chapter three and Jonah would have been a completed story. 
Chapter 3, verse 11 could have read like this. And the once rebellious turned repentant prophet goes back to his, his people rejoicing God. All, what all God has done through him, right? That's what we should have read. That could have been the end of the story. But look at what you read in chapter 1. Or chapter, uh, into chapter 3, verse 10, on through chapter 4. Starting in verse 10 of chapter 3, it says this. When God saw what they did, because this is the repentance of Nineveh, when God saw their repentance, the revival that took place, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Now look at the, the first verse in chapter 4. But it displeased, you might underline that word, displeased Jonah exceedingly. You might underline that word. And he was angry. That's a shocking twist of the story, isn't it? That is not what you're expecting right there. And and there's two things about the Hebrew language there that I think are worth noting. First is on that word displeased. That word in other parts of Jonah is translated evil. Do you see what Jonah is saying here? It's not just that God has done something he doesn't like. He is looking at God and saying, God, you have done evil in this. You have not just kind of been morally neutral here. God, you have crossed the the, the line here into sin. You have sinned in doing this. What you are doing is evil, God. This is the force of what Jonah is saying here. And then one more um, point about verse 1, just in the Hebrew language that it is arranged in such a way that it is straining and it is stretching to show you the force of Jonah's anger. See that word exceedingly? That, that, that's what it's trying to display there for you. That it's not just Jonah a little bit mad at this. It's not just Jonah that, that, you know, I mean, he's just not overly, it's just not a good, it's not, this is Jonah in a fury. This is Jonah fuming at the way of God. Jonah is outraged. Jonah has flown off the handle. You just get out of the house, clear the room, get away from this guy. He has totally lost it. That's what you're seeing in chapter 4 verse 1. Now isn't that interesting when you think about any other context? Think about, think about the uh, actor. The actor finally gets called up to that one movie that he's always wanted to do. He's got the role. Does that actor look at that and say, what's going on here, right? I I hate, I mean, he doesn't do that. He's not outraged about that. Think about the baseball player who is called up from the minor league to the major leagues. Is he outraged? Think about the typical missionary who just watches God totally send a revival to a city. A missionary would be rejoicing there, right? I mean, this is an unparalleled revival that Jonah has just witnessed and it has come about through his preaching. And instead of rejoicing, Jonah is outraged. You see this? See, see, success for Jonah and success for God look totally different in in this story. See, this is success for God. Success for God is there's widespread repentance that happens and I relent, I save, I redeem and I rescue. Success for Jonah goes like this. There is widespread defiance within Nineveh and God kills them all, destroys them all. That's success for Jonah. Do you see the difference in the heart of God and the heart of Jonah here? Jonah is all about the destruction. That's what he wants. See, what you're seeing here is the self-absorbed will of Jonah and the other-oriented will of God colliding. 
That's what you see. And Jonah hates every minute of it. See, Jonah's got a will and that will is for, for Israel to be safe. At, to spare no expense, Israel secure. Israel safe. And God's got an agenda. God's got a will. And that will is to spare no expense to see Nineveh saved. And those two wills collide and Jonah is angry about it. He is displeased about it. He is fuming in a fury about the will and the way of God here. But it's not just the way of God that he's mad about. Look at verse two. He's also mad about the grace of God. He's angered about the grace of God, the love of God, the kindness of God. But watch how this works out. Verse two, and he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you were a gracious God, a merciful God, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Do do you see what's happening here? Jonah does not like what he knows about God. Yesterday we had a birthday party for my oldest girl. She just turned three actually today. We had the party yesterday. And it wasn't just any party. This was a Dora party, right? I mean, we had Diego, we had Dora, we had Boots. They all showed up at the house yesterday and, and full on ready to go. And right before we, we cut the cake, she blew out the candles. What did we do? We sang what to her? Happy birthday, right? Just like it would be, like you would almost have to not be American to to not know happy birthday, right? That's like an American thing. If you're born and raised here, it would be impossible for you not to know the tune and not to know the words, right? And in the same way in the people of Israel, it would have been impossible for them not to have known what Jonah just said about God. These were familiar Old Testament words, often repeated Old Testament words. People knew these words, just like, you know, happy birthday. You you see these words first appear in Exodus 34, where God is revealing himself to Moses. And here's what he says to Moses. Moses, do you see who I am and what I am? This is my character. This is my heart. I am a God full of grace, full of mercy, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Moses, this is what I am. And Jonah grew up knowing that. And you know what? Jonah even grew up loving that as long as it was applied to his place and his people. But in Jonah chapter four, verse two, when that same grace is applied to people beyond the borders of Israel, Jonah is now outraged at it. Jonah can't stand it. See, this this goes beyond Jonah being angry at the people of Nineveh and the people of Assyria. This reaches all the way to Jonah's anger toward God. Jonah is just mad at God. He's mad at the way of God. He's mad at the grace of God. He's mad at the love of God. He's mad at all of it. See, see, this is what Jonah is ultimately mad about, the promiscuity of God's love. That God would just give it to a people like this. I mean, Jonah's looking at God saying, God, what are you thinking? I mean, they don't deserve that. I mean, we're pulling them out of the bars, God. What are you thinking? I mean, this is the heart of Jonah. Isn't it ironic? This this is really the irony in Jonah. That the same grace he desperately needed and experienced in chapter one and chapter two, that same grace, he is outraged when when it's extended to another people. 
This is the irony in the book. That he is so blinded to the fact that it would be just as scandalous for God to give him grace as it was the people of Nineveh. He's blinded to the fact that if it is evil to give grace to the people of Nineveh, it was evil to give grace to, to Jonah. He's blinded to it. He can't see that. He is so angry at the grace of God that is flaunted on people. In, in verse 3, look at how angry he is in verse 3. To the point of just saying, fine. If it comes down to me dying or me watching you display your grace in Nineveh, I choose death. That's how angry he is. He, he does not like the grace of God. Okay, let, let me give you one more picture. I think this is so telling. Jonah's greatest joy in the book, in the whole story, Jonah's greatest joy is in his own, kind of wrapped up in his own personal comfort. Jonah's greatest joy wrapped up in his own comfort. Now, the, the Jonah that we see really throughout the book is a fuming and furious Jonah, isn't it? I mean, he's just not a happy man. He is not a guy you want to be living around or living with. That's Jonah. And think about the one time in the book where we see him glad. Now think about that. I mean, what would you think it would be? I mean, if somebody's just going to ask you the question, you think, well, surely maybe that was like in chapter one, verse one, where, where the Lord, where the word of the Lord came to him. I mean, that's a lot of grace that God spoke to him. And maybe, but no, by the way, it's not there. Uh, or maybe it's later on in chapter one where Jonah is thrown overboard into the sea, into a certain death, and God rescues him with a miraculous fish that swallows him. That's grace, isn't it? I mean, guys, if you've got that story to tell, regardless of how big and how bad the story is from the guy across the table, you've always got one to beat him, right? I mean, you've always got that story that can't be matched. Yeah, maybe you think that's where, I mean, Jonah is going to fall down and just read, but it's not, not there. And maybe you see in chapter 3, where God uses his preaching to spark revival in the city of Nineveh. Not there. You don't find Jonah glad until chapter 4, verse 6. You see this? We'll start in verse 5. Read along with me in verse 5. Jonah went out of the city and set to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what should come of the city. Verse 6. Now the, now the Lord appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. Now watch Jonah. So Jonah was exceedingly glad. He's happy. I mean, he is into it. He is ready to go with it. He's exceedingly glad. Why? Because of the plant. Now, isn't that ironic? J Jonah, he goes outside of the city after they repent, and he's just waiting, and he's hoping for the sequel of Sodom and Gomorrah, right? I mean, he is wanting to see these people wiped clean from the face of the planet. So he's sitting there, and, and all of a sudden, God appoints a plant. It grows up over him, provides shade, and Jonah is so happy in that moment. Do you see this? That Jonah's greatest happiness in his life is not attached to the joy of others or the glory of God. It's attached to his personal comfort and coziness. You see that? Now, if this isn't telling for us, convicting for us, I don't know what would be. That ire, personal joy, is not connected 
to the joy of others and the, and the glory of God, but instead attached to our own personal comfort and personal coziness. That that's you, not just Jonah, right? I mean, think about how this applies in your life. See, the problem is not that Jonah is rejoicing about a plant. I mean, that's perfectly right to do that. I mean, there should be things in Jonah's life that he rejoices at. But here is the problem in the book of Jonah and in Jonah's heart is that he is not rejoicing in a revival in Nineveh, that God relented in Nineveh. Do you see the difference here? It's not evil for him to rejoice over this. It's evil that he didn't rejoice over that. Do you see this? Think about the last five things you have been overjoyed about. I mean, just ecstatic about. I mean, that like, Put you to your knees. You're so happy that you just got that. Had that happen. Think about those moments. The last five of them for you. Three or four of them. See, the problem is not that you're overjoyed about those things. But the problem is more than likely those things were not connected to the joy of others and the glory of God. They were connected to your own personal comfort and your own coziness. AKA, we just got the flat screen TV. We just got the new iPad, Right? It's, it's all of our joy is wrapped up in our little world, our personal comfort. What makes me and my life a little bit better and not the mission of God? Do you see that contrast there? Do you see what's happening there? Okay, now we'll, we'll kind of build these climatic questions and then bring this down. Chapter four, it, it comes to a head when you kind of get into verse four and beyond. God is going to bring it to a head with these heart penetrating, idolatry-exposing questions. Okay, it, it's all culminating into this climatic moment. Okay, so, so make sure you're seeing, kind of tracking along in, in chapter four. Verses one and two, Jonah is angry at the will of God. He's angry at the grace of God. He does not like God. He is so angry that in verse three, he is ready to die. That's how angry he is. Now, I've said this a lot, but let me just stop here and say it one more time. How would you have responded in that story? See, for the 19th time, I would have already have killed Jonah. There would be no verse four. It'd be over right there, right? He's already done. He's dead. But that is not how God responds to him. And can I just tell you this? There is no one in the universe more patient with you than God is. Your wife, your husband, your kids, your boss, your friends, no one is more patient than you with God, than God is. Look at how God responds in verse four. And the Lord said, Jonah. Like this is, I, I picture this as just the God coming as a counselor to Jonah. Jonah, do you do well to be angry? You see just the compassion and just the, the, the wording there? Jonah, do you do well to be angry? Do you see that this adds no color to your life? that it's stripping you of everything good, that you're becoming a shadow of what I've intended you to be. Jonah, do you see what this is doing to you? That this is destroying you, Jonah. That this is not good for you, Jonah. Jonah, is it good for you to be angry? God is coming to him in grace and saying, Jonah, wake up. You are being ridiculous. Wake up here, Jonah. Is it good for you to be angry? But it, God doesn't stop there. His pursuit keeps going. Look at verse six, seven, and eight. God keeps pressing on Jonah's heart. Look at what he does here. In verse six, God appoints a plant. 
gives him some shade. Verse seven, God appoints a worm. If you ever need to prove the sovereignty of God, you can go to a lot of passages. I think I'm gonna go to these four words. God appoints a worm. If God can appoint a worm, control a worm, I think he's got our life under control, right? He appoints a worm. It eats the, it eats the, uh, the plant, kills it. Then look at verse eight. Then God appoint, appoints a scorching east wind. Do you see that? Blistering, beating down on the head of Jonah. I mean, I can't read that part, like those three things happening and not just kind of chuckle a little bit, right? I mean, I'm reading over this this week and literally like I laughed out loud by myself. It was really awkward. But I mean, just think of, think of what's happened to this guy. I mean, chapter one, he has been on this escapade down to Tarshish. He has been on this excursion away from God. God literally takes him to the point of drowning him and then he saves him. He puts him in the belly of a fish and Jonah is vomited out of the fish. He is the chunks in the vomit. You get that? That's a bad day for anybody, right? This is what's happening to this man. He goes to chapter three and he sees the exact thing that he did not want to see happen. You get to chapter four and he's finally got a moment of relief. He's got shade and God gets a worm to eat the plant, right? Not only that, God blisters his head with a scorching wind. I mean, God is getting Jonah to the end of himself. And that is the grace of God at work in Jonah's life, isn't it? And then watch how God responds here to Jonah. Jonah in verse eight, I am ready to die. Kill me now. And look how, look how God responds. Comes to Jonah again. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? You see God coming in grace and compassion there. Jonah, do you do well to be angry here? And Jonah does something really stupid. He answers a rhetorical question, right? He said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. Jonah shakes his fist at God and says, God, this is how angry I am. I don't care what you say, how you go about saying it. God, I am ready to die if these are the options. Okay, now the last two verses, 10 and 11, they form the climatic point. So I wanna make sure that you see this accurately before we read these verses. In six, seven, and eight, there's been three parallel kind of um, events that have happened. They, they all have similar characteristics. Let me just kind of run you through the characteristics. Three parallel events. Number one, God appoints them. Okay, so event number one, God appoints a plant. Event number two in verse seven, God appoints a worm. Event number three in verse eight, God appoints a scorching east wind. And then it records the effects, like what those things did. So the plant grew up and gave shade, verse six. Verse seven, you've got the worm eats and kills the plant. Verse eight, you've got the scorching east wind beats down on the head of Jonah. Then it records, third characteristic, it records Jonah's response to these things. Verse six, Jonah is exceedingly glad at the shade of the plant. Verse eight, the scorching east wind, it sends him into despair. Kill me now, I'm ready to die. But you notice in verse seven, that second event, it doesn't record Jonah's response to it. The storyteller takes the words out of the mouth of Jonah and he puts them into the mouth of God for God to tell the story. Now look at these last two verses with God telling Jonah the problem with the plant. Verse 10, and the Lord said, Jonah, you pity the plant. 
for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. He is looking at Jonah and saying, Jonah, you pity that plant. That's an emotional response. That, that's a, the picture there is like weeping eyes. That is Jonah that's got parts of his heart tied up in a plant. This is Jonah that, that looks at this plant and loves it. This is Jonah pitying the plant and God saying, listen, Jonah, you pity the plant. You're emotionally invested into the plant. You did not labor for that plant. You did not grow that plant. Jonah, you just had a one night stand with that plant. It was one night. That was it. And Jonah, you have pity for the plant. Now watch God's response. This is the climactic point in, in the story. Verse 11. If this is what you do, Jonah, if you are pitying the plant, verse 11, and should not I, Jonah, Jonah, if this is what you're doing, if, if you've got all this emotion wrapped up in this plant, all this compassion for the plant, if that's how you feel about the plant, should not I pity, same word, emotional. There's emotional investment here. Parts of God's heart entwined and intertangled here. Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? You see what God's doing? He's using this logic where he's arguing from like the least to the greatest. If you're going to like rank a value onto the things that we see here, here's the value. Highest value, people. Mid-range value, somewhere down here, cattle. Somewhere down below that, plants, right? Now here's what God's doing here. He's saying, Jonah, do you see what's happening? Your emotional investment, your love, your compassion, your pity, your grace is for what is least, what is temporal, what at the end of the day will be washed away and will not matter. That's where your emotional investment is. I mean, Jonah is looking up at God and, and saying, God, I do not understand your love. How can you give it to the people of Nineveh? And God is looking at Jonah and saying, Jonah, I do not understand your love. You love plants more than you love people. Climatic part of the book. And here's the conclusion of it. You see how it ends? It, it, there's no response from Jonah. There's no, there's no, well, let me kind of get my last word in from Jonah. It's as if the storyteller, here's the conclusion. It's as if the storyteller at the last second pulls Jonah away out of the way of the path of that question. And at the same time, he pulls the reader, you right into the path of that question. And he says, now that question, here's your conclusion. That question is yours to answer. Do you really love plants more than you love people? Are you really more concerned with what is temporal and what is least significant than you are for people? See, and don't be confused here with what plants are. See, your plant may be your career. Are you really more concerned about your career than you are people? See, see, your plant may be the security of your family. Are you really more concerned about the security of your family than you are people? See, see your, your plant may be your reputation. Are you really more concerned about your reputation? 
than people? You see what's happening here? Your plan may be your comfort. Are you really more concerned about your private comfort than you are people? It may be your house. It may be your car. It may be this next new gadget that you've got. It may be this project that you're working on. And God is saying to you, to the church, he's reverberating this message in this building. Do you really love those plants more than you love people? Do you really do that? Are you serious in that? And this is my hope and my heart for us is that God would work with his transforming grace and he would massage the gospel so deeply into us that the heart of Jonah would be massaged out and his missionary heart would be massaged in. That we would be a people broken for our world concerned about our neighborhood for the gospel going forth in our neighborhood, that we would be people living with reckless abandon for the cause of Christ and the movement of the gospel, that that would be us, this group of people, you, me, us as a family together, walking on the mission of God with the missionary heart of God. I'll end with this story. Her her name was Karen Watson. She was a missionary to Iraq. And in 2004, March 15, 2004, she was killed by an unknown group of attackers. And um, eventually, I, I guess they got her body and they recovered a letter on her body that said, uh, only open in case of death. And so they sent it back to, um, it was written to her church and to her pastors in her church. They sent it back and this is what they read, her letter that was only opened at her death Um, this was read at her funeral. Let let me read a couple of parts of it for you. Dear Pastor Phil and Pastor Roger, you should only be opening this in the event of my death. She goes on to say, when God calls, there are no regrets. I tried to share my heart with you as much as possible, my heart for the nations. I wasn't called to a place. I was ultimately called to a person, to Jesus. To obey was my objective. To suffer was expected. His glory was my reward. His glory, my reward. The missionary heart cares more than some people think is wise. The missionary heart risks more than some people think is safe. The missionary heart of God dreams more than some people think is practical. The missionary heart of God in us, it expects more than some people think is possible. I was called not to comfort or to success. I was called to obedience. There is no joy outside of knowing Jesus and serving him. I love you too and my church family. In him, Karen. Oh, that God would work that sort of thing in us, that today we would pin our letters and prepare our lives for reckless abandon, abandonment on the mission of God. That we would be people with God's missionary heart that know and live in and embrace his beautiful message, the gospel, and who give our life away to extend it. Amen? Let's pray. It was painful prepping for this one. Um,
man, I, when I lay this over my own life, if you were to ask me the question, why are you preaching with that much passion over this issue? My response would be because I'm preaching at me. And I have such high hopes and high dreams for our church family that, that God would change my heart, God would change your heart. From what we see in Jonah, this tribal, self-absorbed, self-centered heart to a missionary heart, to to the heart of God that is others-centered, that really cares about other people. So so where are you in that? And when you contrast those two, the the question is meant for you. the, The whole point of Jonah culminates in that question where the storyteller brings you right in front of it, face to face with it. Do you care more for plants than for people? I mean, is that you? Spending your life on things that are temporal, that are here one day and eaten by a worm the next? Or are you giving your life away for the mission of God? I mean, this is all of us in here. Plant, plants or people? I mean, this is serious questions. Let me just try to ask somebody to expose these things in us. Are you praying consistently and compassionately? Are you praying for people who don't know Jesus? I mean, is that like a normal routine and rhythm where you're actively praying for people? See, if we're not praying for people who don't know Jesus, it is because our hearts are like Jonah that we don't care about people like God cares about them. That we're okay if we get grace and and they get judgment. That we're okay with that. I mean, are you praying passionately for people? People that don't know Jesus. Are you inviting them into your life? Like when's the last time you've had them into your home and and inviting them around your table where you can get to know their story and them get to know your story? Where you invite them into your group of friends? They know your people. You know their people. You're inviting them into your life. See, if we're not doing that, it's because our heart is like Jonas. See, if we're not living in such a way that we are demonstrating the gospel with our lives and declaring it with our lips, it's because our heart is like Jonah and we don't care because we've already got it. And oh, that God would change the heart of our church in this. See, what what needed to be exposed in Jonah needs to be exposed in us, that Jonah is us, that we are Jonah. And the only thing I know that roots this out long-term, that just picks up from from the roots, the the weed of self-righteousness and self-absorption is the gospel. That when we start to live in and love and embrace that God the missionary sent Jesus the missionary to live a life that we could never live, to die a death that we should have died, to secure for all of his sons and daughters the eternal affection of the Father. That's the missionary heart of God. And the only way to uproot this self-absorption, this tribalism, is to live in the gospel, to love the gospel, to embrace the gospel, to be in awe at the, at the wonder of the gospel. So God, I pray for that. God, will you do that here in this place amongst my heart, amongst their heart, amongst 
us. God, will will you do that here? God, I pray for that. God, give us your heart, your missionary impulse for the world around us. God, make us into people that take the initiative, that that take steps toward people. Nineveh never asked you to save them. God, help us be like you in that. God, change our hearts in that. Give us new desires, new wants, new hopes. And it's all for your glory and the good of your great name. Amen. Why don't you stand with us? Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.